welcome to this third session in the Strand, the Battle for the Economy. My name is Rob Lyons. I'm Science and Technology Director at the Institute of Ideas. I'm also the convener of the IOI's Economy Forum. As I said, the third debate, it's entitled, Is Globalisation Over? The Future of World Trade? Many thanks to the City of London Corporation for being our partners for this session. One effect of the, uh, the vote to leave the EU possibly reflected in the uh, attendance for this discussion is that suddenly everybody's interested in trade um, in a way that possibly wasn't the case before. So what kind of trading relationship we have in the future with the EU is right at the centre of the political agenda. But the issue of trade goes way beyond the, the, the Brexit talks. Um, most obviously, Donald Trump was elected on a promise to bring jobs home to America and described the North American Free Trade Agreement with Canada and Mexico as the worst trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere, but certainly ever signed in this country. I don't think he's keen, that's what I would say. The World Trade Organization talks stalled about a decade ago. Um, there are voices on both the left and the right that argue that either globalization has gone too far, or perhaps more commonly that it's been pursued in the interests of the rich rather than ordinary working people. But on the other hand, world trade continues to increase, and China's One Belt, One Road initiative could be uh, another way in which barriers to trade uh, are reduced even further. And many, many people would argue that globalization and this expansion of free trade has been an enormous boon to the living standards of people both in the developing world and the developed world. So there's a lot to talk about, lots of different avenues to explore. And to discuss the issues, we have a sparkling and erudite panel, and I'll briefly introduce them uh, in the order they're going to speak. Please visit our website to find out more about them and their many achievements. I will not be covering them all here. So on my immediate right is, is Gerard Lyons. He's the co-author of Clean Brexit, which argues how to ensure we make a success of leaving the EU. He spent 27 years in senior roles in the city and was chief econom economic advisor to Boris Johnson in his second term as mayor of London. He now has a portfolio of roles in finance, universities, and economics. On the far right is Vicky Price. She's a board member of the Centre for Economics and Business Research and sits on the economic advisory group of the British Chambers of Commerce and on the advisory board of OMFIF, I don't know what it stands for, uh, the, central, the central banking think tank. Her recent books include Redesigning Manufacturing, Greek Economics, and It's the Economy Stupid, Economics for Voters, which is a very accessible guide to a lot of, and even though it was written a couple, for the election a couple of years ago, I'm sure it's still very pertinent in terms of the, some, of the, some of the main economic issues going on in British society at the moment. Uh, next to Vicky is Professor Michael Mainelli. Is, he's an executive chairman of ZN Group, the City of London's leading commercial think tank and venture firm. He's also an alderman of the City of London and author of The Price of Fish, A New Approach to Wicked Economics and Better Decisions. He is emeritus professor at Gresham College. Uh, on my immediate left is Alan Simpson. He's chief operating officer for Labour in the City, a membership organisation of around 600 Labour supporters working in financial and professional services. He's an economic and financial policy specialist and works for a ma major UK bank advising on global political and economic trends. And finally, on my far left is Professor James Woodhausen. He's worked with a list of famous companies as long as your arm and is now visiting professor of forecasting and innovation at London South Bank University. He's co-author of Energize, A Future for Energy Innovation and author of Why is Construction So Backward? 
He also once presented a program on Radio 4 about the 19th century romantic poets. He a renaissance man, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, can we uh, welcome our panel? So I've asked the panel to speak for five to seven minutes each, giving us their takes or take on the uh, discussion in hand, and then we'll come out to you for your questions and comments. So, without any further ado, Gerard. Good afternoon. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, given the time, I thought I would focus on the first part of the uh, topic, is globalization over? And I would say no. And I will focus on three areas. First, the lessons since the global financial crisis of nine years ago. Second, what I think are the big global economic drivers, the top-down ones. And third, the bottom-up issues that impact people and maybe our future attitudes towards globalization. Naturally, this is a big issue because for the UK to succeed in a post-Brexit world or in a Brexit environment, we need to get three things right. We need to get the domestic economy correct. We need to have a good future relationship with the European Union. And we need to position ourselves in the changing, growing global economy. And really the lesson since the financial crisis is that the world economy has continued to grow despite perceptions here in the West. Let me quote some figures. $32 trillion was the size of the world economy at the beginning of this century. $62 trillion was the size of the world economy the day the financial crisis broke. And this year, at the end of it, according to the IMF, the world economy will be $79 trillion in size. So we've seen continued growth. Now, the challenge in the West is that our policy reaction to the financial crisis has not, in my view, been the best one. Um, we had a financial crisis caused by too much liquidity, namely too much money, uh, too low a level of rates, too much debt, and too big a role of the financial sector. The policy response has been more liquidity, lower rates, and more debt, and an even stronger role for, for the financial sector. So all the issues that came to the fore during the financial crisis have effectively been kicked down the road. To make that even worse in terms of this whole debate about globalization, and the reason why many people say globalization cannot continue, is that monetary policy has been the shock absorber. And low interest rates have actually compounded the inequality problem in the West. Not so much in terms of poor people suffering, but the big difference has been between the have-lots, probably the people in this room, and the have-yots. The mega-rich have become very wealthier. Also, since the crisis, lots of issues that we knew in economic terms before have now started to be talked about. We've known for the last 30 years that globalization has resulted in the emerging middle class doing well, but poor, unskilled workers in the West suffering as their wages were squeezed. We knew that before the financial crisis, but we've only started to talk about it since, particularly in terms of manual labor in the West, in the States. Protectionism has become a bigger issue as a way of whether we can protect ourselves against the worst savages of globalization. But the good news is that the protectionist dog, so to speak, has not barked. We haven't really seen an increase in protectionism, although there has been a rise in one or two protectionist elements. Economists have also, in the last nine years, talked about global trade suddenly subsiding, disappearing, stopping. Before the financial crisis, global trade tended to increase at twice the pace of global GDP. In the last few years, it was maybe half the rate of global GDP. But the good news is, in the last one year or so, and starting to pick gather momentum now, global trade is starting to recover. And finally, in terms of the last nine years, the votes we saw here in the West. 
the Brexit vote, in my mind, was not a vote against globalization. People voted, for, no, quite frankly, for all sorts of reasons. Sovereignty, migration, and the economy were key issues. But at the same time, a lot of the analysis showed that local issues, people talked about work, family, and place. And that's why now, not just in Catalonia, not just in Scotland, but in the Western world, there's more talk about the need to devolve power so local areas can position themselves in this changing, growing global economy. So those, to conclude the first part, are issues that have come to the fore in the last nine years. Second, what do I think are the big macro drivers? Well, we could talk about hard power, military power. We could talk about soft power, and Britain will do very well in that, given culture, creativity. We could talk about institutions and how they're changing. And the good news is, at a global level, global institutions are starting to address many global issues. Admittedly, Mr. Trump has walked away from the Paris, or is walking away from the Paris Accord. But apart from that, um, we've had agreement on the environment. Financial Stability Board at a global level is starting to address financial issues. And we've seen global standardized approaches to some big issues. That's all good. but. Really, it's the economic and financial drivers that I think will be key in ensuring that we want to share in globalization in the future. And it's really perspiration and inspiration. Perspiration is more people doing more things, selling more stuff across the globe. One in 12 people in the world is an Indian under 26. Africa has 435 million people currently alive under the age of 16 set to enter the workforce. More Africans will enter the workforce. In fact, twice as many Africans will enter the global workforce as China and India combined in the next 15 years. That will add to migration issues, but at the same time, it creates a big middle class across parts of the world. Then there's the inspiration issues. And I would put China in this. China is moving up the value curve. But at the same time, there are two big global themes that really do suggest globalization is a big issue for the future. One is China's Belt Road Initiative, the biggest infrastructure boost ever seen, and it's taking place now and is going to gather momentum over the next decade. Then there's the fourth industrial revolution. Northeast America, stem cell research, China, um, it, Japan, it's robotics. Here in the UK, it's a whole host of issues. But we're seeing individual things that each in isolation, whether it's green energy, et cetera, which would be important, but collectively are vitally important. And third and finally, the bottom-up issues. When we look at wages and employment, four factors come together. The old relationship between workers and managers. Do workers share more in the future success? Financialization, which is always overlooked, particularly here in Britain. The financial sector has not really been there to service the rest of the economy, We've had a short-term focus on dividends, earnings. We need to have the financial sector there to drive domestic economic growth. Third is technical change. It's complex. It's continuous. We always think it's competitive in the sense that technology will take away jobs. But the lesson from history is that technology is complementary. It might lead to some losers, but also it leads to some winners and big change. And the final issue impacting wages and employment is the globalization issue itself. Here in Britain, half the population work in low-skilled jobs. A third of our output is in low-skilled jobs. We have to compete on price, but at the same time, we want increasingly to compete more on quality. We need to address that issue, because if you do it on price, someone somewhere will always do it cheaper.
Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Vicky. Thank you. I'm usually on platforms disagreeing with everything that Gerald says, particularly on Brexit, but this time I'm going to have to agree with the overall... Um, no, go on. Yes, okay, okay, okay. okay. Theme that actually globalisation is, is, is a good thing and is likely to continue. Uh, but there are uh, loads and loads of concerns about uh, the various mm, like measures which are being implemented in various places, the talk uh, in the States and elsewhere. I think Brexit is a step in the wrong direction in this respect. Uh, but I think overall it is difficult to put the globalisation genie back in the bottle. Uh, thank God for that. And, but I think what has happened, I think uh, what uh, Rob was, was, was talking about in his... Uh, announcement of what the issues that we wanted to discuss were, uh, is that it has, it has brought to the fore the importance of trade. Um, people don't understand the implications of it. Uh, it was a nebulous concept. Uh, most people you, you ask uh, in the streets would tell you, yes, of course, trading is a good thing, but they don't actually understand the benefits of it. Actually, globalisation has been a, a, a serious force for encouraging hundreds of millions of people to move out of poverty in places like China, as we know. We may disagree with their methods, but actually that has certainly been the case in terms of uh, the lot of people improving in, in relation to uh, health, uh, nutrition, prospects, and so on. Um, it has also, of course, from an economic perspective entirely, helped keep companies competitive. When you look at the EU in particular, the real problem, in my view, in the whole Brexit debate before the referendum was that nobody explained what having a free trade area, or at least as free as we could possibly make it, the freest trade area uh, that exists in the world, basically, what impact of that had been on the way in which we run our economy. Uh, not just, of course, the UK, but also in terms of other countries in Europe and elsewhere. What happens if you have a free trade area, or one which is as free as you can possibly make it, is that it pushes you to be considerably more competitive, because basically you've got all these other firms that can come into your market, uh, that are in their own areas where you are trying to uh, penetrate, and of course you need a level playing field to be able to compete properly. And that is exactly what Europe had developed over a number of decades in relation to regulations, rules, people moving freely from one place to another. Those are absolutely crucial elements of what free trade actually means. And they are absolutely crucial elements in terms of what globalization means. But of course, it can turn quite nasty it turns nasty when you have crisis. Uh, what I think we as economists have not quite realised in this period of vast globalisation that was taking place is really that the world had become incredibly well connected. So if somebody sneezed in one part of the world, particularly in the financial sector, then everything was affected and you could have a domino effect, which is precisely what happened with the financial crisis. That doesn't, of course, mean that you want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It means you have to be considerably more careful, much more careful about regulation, much more careful about having similar uh, norms and standards across the world so that you don't have uh, one country that, for example, reduces its tax system, its tax rate so significantly to attract business in it, uh, and then, of course, uh, to one, to one extent, 
competes with others, but also can get into serious trouble if it overdoes it. I mean, remember that by the time of the financial crisis, Ireland had a bank whose balance sheet had become like a global bank, but it was higher than the GDP of the Irish economy as a whole. How do you deal with this crisis? Uh, if the regulators are asleep or they decide to dismantle a lot of restrictions like um, President Trump seems to want to do right now in the US, then that, of course, puts in the seeds for globalization, self-destruction. That's what we really need to be worried about. In addition, we need to be worrying about America first. For example, the restrictions that there may be on other countries doing business with those um, rather large um, entities that have developed. There are now some superpowers that can dictate what happens in the future. We look at China, we say, my God, they are indeed the champions of globalization, but look at their structures and look also at the huge amount of subsidy that goes into their businesses. And then, of course, they can come out and compete with the rest of us. So, yes, globalization, but not at any cost. But it is interesting when you look at what's actually happened because of it. We can certainly attribute huge amount of the, of the relatively low inflation that the West has had to globalization. That has created a serious consumer surplus. Yes, some jobs have gone, but new ones have been created, as we know, if you look at what goes on right now in the, in the UK. Yes, perhaps they're not quite the high manufacturer jobs you wanted, but certainly uh, there are jobs. But the consumer has benefited, companies have benefited, and to the extent, of course, that they pay proper tax, then they are making a proper contribution uh, to the economy too. And hopefully they're reinvesting some of this. The movement of people has allowed companies to expand a lot more than would have been the case otherwise. Look at the UK, where our natural rate of uh, non-inflationary accelerating unemployment, in other words, how fast can you grow your economy before you start worrying about inflation, stopping it. We used to have all these brakes put on the economy every now and then. That has all been uh, you know, uh, completely reversed in the sense that you know, before we thought 10% unemployment was a, bad, was a worry. Now, of course, we have 4.5% and we seem to be still growing considerably fast. And, and the last thing I would say, given this interconnectivity that exists, is that monetary authorities have actually done the right thing since the financial crisis by uh, putting loads of liquidity into the market. They disagree entirely with Gerald. They have kept the economy going, which would not have been the case otherwise. Yes, they have created some distortions. And the one thing to bear in mind in terms of uh, why we have this populism, why people have been worried about globalization. It's not so much what's happened to the unskilled. If you look at the data, it's not actually what people normally think. It is the medium skills that have suffered the largest declines in employment. It is the high skills and the unskilled who have actually increased their employment levels in the developed world. And it is in the medium one where people need to worry about what the automation will do, how we reverse that to ensure that the fight for continued globalization uh, is still there rather than reversing into completely suboptimal positions, which is for me the greatest worry in terms of world growth. Thank you. Thank you. Michael. Well, thank you very much. Um, Despite the accent, I'm the local boy. Um, this is my turf, the City of London. Uh, in the City of London, we have 110 livery companies. Uh, we have ironmongers, costermongers, lightmongers. Uh, uh, and I was sworn in on Wednesday night as master of the Worshipful Company of World Traders. Um, so I'm, I'm a globemonger or a worldmonger, a 
hopefully not a fear monger today. Um, and one of the things that's interesting, of course, about that is um, I needed a catchphrase. So my catchphrase for this year is, Psst, hey, buddy, want to buy a planet? And when you think about it, it's kind of interesting. Economists spend a, a bit of time, believe it or not, trying to value the world. Uh, there are a number of numbers out there. Five quadrillion was one. Um, but to realize this, um, how do you do it? You kind of hand the cash to the aliens, and then you kind of step off into the vacuum of space, frightfully rich but rather dead. Um, you know, what, what's the deal here? And I think the deal is I was born into a world in 1958 with 2.9 billion people. The world today is 7.5 billion people, and we're going to go up roughly to about 10 billion, hopefully before it starts tapering around 2050. Now, that's quite interesting. Far stronger in terms of predictive capacity than the weather or economics is, in fact, demography. Uh, and those demographic calculations tend to be pretty accurate over, over long periods of time. So what most people are objecting to isn't trade. It's not even globalization. It's just a more crowded planet. And that's going to keep going. So the pressures are always going to be there. Uh, and we will go in fits and starts, in my opinion, up and down uh, and struggle with it. I think the second thing, though, that people don't forget is trade is a natural reaction. Uh, trade is what actually allows us to, to, to experience what Adam Smith was about, which was things like specialization, Ricardo on comparative advantage. These are the things that make a difference. Um, think about trying to sit at home and take care of yourself without recourse to your fellow man. And the answer is you can't do it. Um, I love the, the guy who tried to build a toaster from scratch and found the toaster project was, was just well out of control. We need our fellow man, and we, in fact, have no choice. So it's more about your adjustment to trade than it is about the whys and wherefores of it. I think a second point I'd make is that trade doesn't need trade agreements. Trade will out. Uh, trade, is, trade is going to happen. Trade agreements can facilitate trade massively, and they can give you comparative advantage in trading. So I am a proponent who believes it would be great to have trade agreements. Um, secondly, trust is important. Trust underpins all trade and investment. And I do think we are seeing a breakdown in trust. So this division of the world uh, and the breakdown in trust is affecting trade, but trade will continue with or without trade agreements. So I'd just like to conclude with um, a little bit of history, which I think points uh, a little bit to the future. Uh, one of my minor heroes is a German-Flemish economist by the name of Silvio Gazelle. Uh, Silvio lived from 1862 to 1930, uh, and he is, in my opinion, uh, much underregarded. Irving Fisher thought he was a genius. John Maynard Keynes said the world has far more to learn from Silvio Gazelle than from Marx, but I suspect there are only a handful of people in the audience who know Silvio's work. Silvio wrote an interesting book which inspired the Swiss. It was called Frei Wirtschaft, and he wrote this book uh, in, the, in the early 1900s. And in it, he postulated three things about his free economy, the Freiwirtschaft. Free trade, free land, free money. And so I just touch on those three briefly, because they might structure our discussion. By free trade, he meant free trade in goods and services, but he also meant uh, free trade in people and others, people being able to cross borders, the free movement of people's immigration. You'll note that Switzerland does abide to this, by this, at least in terms of as a percentage of nationals who are born overseas. So really, he's talking about beyond geography. The second thing was uh, free land. This is um, a, a complicated concept, possibly in English, but what he was trying to point out was that, in fact, we should never own land in perpetuity. The concept of ownership is problematic itself. Think about it. Um, I've just bought a house, and I'm tearing out the village orchard, and you pass me by. What are you going to say to me? 
hey, you jerk, you're tearing out the village orchard. I say, well, tough on you, I own it. Well, if I'm leasing that land, I have a very different reaction. Hey, Michael, the community can take it back. Uh, they rather respect this orchard. So he's talking about things like land value tax, really getting into handling the way that we deal with geographic contiguity. So I think we need to think about beyond ownership. And for me, one of the biggest trade challenges looming is, in fact, ownership in areas like intellectual property. The final point was uh, free money. Um, well, free money uh, does elicit a number of emotional reactions, and we can probably cover that in our discussion. Um, but I would point out that in 2010, anybody out here Bitcoin aficionados, right? Well, the thousand-year-old democracy that is the City of London Corporation actually commissioned me to do research on new architectures for trade and commerce in 2010. And we published that uh, article in 20, uh, sorry, report in 2011. So we're very much onto it here. We are very curious about the way in which cryptocurrencies might change things. We're actually far more fascinated with what digital fiat currencies might do. We're even more fascinated with what smart ledgers might do, which means don't worry about the payments. Worry about facilitating trade in areas like identity, global identity systems, helping people uh, to, 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 to connect with each other. So I would leave us with those thoughts. Uh, merely trade doesn't need trade agreements. Uh, the fundamentals here, to me, are about a crowded planet. Trade is a, a natural mechanism that we can't curtail that's part of that. And I would end on um, a quote from Thomas Jefferson in his 1801 inaugural lecture, Commerce and Honest Friendship with All. Thank you. Um, I, I start where you left off, actually. Uh, trade doesn't need trade agreements. And, of course, trade and globalization have been around since we came out of the trees. It's just the things we thought of as countries are much smaller. You know, tri tribes traded with tribes, um, cities traded with cities, city-states traded with city-states, and, and ever on. But in the modern sense, globalization isn't new either. One measure of globalization might be, well, you add up the imports and exports of a country and see what that is as a percentage of GDP. For a fairly representative group of countries by the First World War, globalization was about 38% of those economies. But by the middle of the 20th century, it was down to about 7%, and it got up to, depending how you measure these things, around late 40s, late 50s by the, the financial crisis. So globalization, both in the older sense and its newer sense, is not new at all. But clearly something is new because we've got a room full of people who want to hear about it, and I promise you that isn't normally the case. Um, and I think it's two things are new, really. The first thing is hyper-globalisation, which is the, the word which we tend to use to describe the world we now live in. And that has many uh, characteristics. One of them is speed, and speed delivered by technology particularly. And I mean, I'm shipping containers just as much as I mean the internet. But it does bring things like much more pronounced systemic risk, as we saw in the financial crisis. My own sector can turn up in a country and damage it really quite quickly nowadays. You're welcome. And also um, immigration. This is a contested issue. People argue about Im whether immigration does actually have measurable negative effects in host countries. But if you're uh, a lower earner, it absolutely does. Um, if you earn two standard deviations below the average, you will find that for every percent that your country's population increases as a result of immigration, your wages go down about half a percent. And that is material if you don't own very much. And also, it has cultural impacts as well. We've, we hear a lot now about loss, cultural loss as a result of um, globalization. And I think people do perceive um, 
increased global homogeneity as, a, as an attack on them, and we shouldn't belittle that or fail to understand it. I stood for Parliament twice with a crashing lack of success and knocking on doors. I have found that people who, who talk about Brexit or globalisation or whatever word they use to talk about this, they tend to be talking about things much more closer to them and much more, more central to them, and they will often have um, very personalised stories of disadvantage or loss which they uh, ascribe to, to, to trends way above themselves. But the second thing, the second thing which is new, is that we we're losing, and this is new. Um, when we sell something to somebody, we tend to call that trade. When they try and sell it back, we call that globalisation. It's a pejorative term. And previously, in this reasonably modern period of, of globalisation after the creation of the nation state, predominantly we were selling things to other countries. We were importing commodities from uh, states we owned, frankly, and selling them back. Sometimes literally states we owned and selling them back. But now we are seeing a situation where there is pronounced sectoral pressure, which means pronounced regional pressure. So if you're in a part of the UK, for example, which used to manufacture textiles, you, you perceive globalisation very differently to if you live in London, which is a net exporter. Um, we are seeing a situation where the new economies have overtaken the developed economies in terms of GDP. That's a frightening place to be. And we are seeing taxes pushed downwards. Um, the decline in taxation, corporate taxation, I'm talking about rather than personal taxation in the developed economies over the last two or three generations is pronounced. Uh, if you take uh, the UK's intention to reach 17% corporate taxes in the coming years, that is, that is below both our global rivals, it's also below historic trend. And that's at a time where we need taxation to pay for exactly those risks which hyperglobalisation brings to the fore. So what's next? I think in the medium term, we are going to see retrenchment. We are going to see people resist globalisation in exactly the way as we saw now. And Gerard, you're right that uh, Brexit had um, many reasons that people voted for it, but inside that coalition very certainly was a rejection of globalisation as such. In Germany, in France, in the US, even in Japan with the election there two weeks ago, we, we, we've seen um, ver versions of this centrifugal force of modern politics take hold. But really only in the developed economies, because if you look at the new economies, as we saw from the Chinese Premier last week, they are pushing ahead with globalisation as an explicit policy. The foundation of the, uh, the AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, is partly intended as a direct attempt to create client states and power blocks in opposition to the Washington-based hegemony of the World Bank. And we will see that trend take place, and I think we will see increased, at least in the medium term, constraint in the West and expansion in the East cross-border. But in the long term, this is as inevitable as death and taxes. Globalisation happens because people want to travel. Globalisation happens because we invent things which makes it easier, easier to do, and I can't see that changing anytime soon. But I would just very quickly, one last point, counsel against something that Gerard said. I'm not sure that localising um, politics is a rational response to an enhanced globalisation of power dynamics. If we localise democracy, we may perhaps, although I'd consider it unproven, give people more of a sense of control over their lives, although democracy isn't a question of ratio. If you're not in the room, it doesn't matter if the people making the decisions are one to 100 related to you or one to 10,000 related to you, it's, it's, it's abstract. But also because those power structures will be too weak. 
I work for a global bank. We uh, have a we pre-crisis had a balance sheet larger than the UK economy. The ability to constrain my industry and industries like mine requires um, coherence at a global level, not disaggregation to a local one. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Alan. Well, uh, good afternoon, everybody. I think um, Gerard said that the protectionist dog hasn't barked. I think that's true, but I think it's given more than a woof, uh, Gerard. Uh, I think if you take um, Bombardier, if you take uh, chlorinated chicken, which, as we know, and Michael Gove has concluded is the biggest threat to human survival in the UK since just about anything, uh, the protectionist winds are growing. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that we're returning to thir the 30s and it doesn't mean that Donald Trump is Hitler, like far too many people seem to believe. The difference is, and I think the panel is too sanguine about globalization and a little bit complacent about the changing forms that it's taken. Now, one of the ways that in which we do differ from the 30s is simply that the range and extent of protectionist measures today is bigger than the 30s. You didn't have a ban on chlorinated chicken known as non-tariff barriers, non-tariff <coughs> measures. Don't all fall asleep at the same time. It's, it's not the same as a tariff. Got that? Uh, so you, you didn't have that in the 30s. And we have a whole range of protectionist measures, many of them unconscious. What begins as a green movement for legislation and for national health and safety ends with trade barriers, not of a tariff form, not just to do with Chinese subsidies, not, uh, but to do with technical barriers to trade, sanitary and phytosanitary, which is to do with plants. Those kinds of differences between Britain and America, formal allies, about trade, it's quite different from what we had in the 30s. So there's a wider range of protectionist measures, many of them quite opaque and not well known about. And secondly, the forms of globalization have grown quite out of proportion to... Uh, anything that we've seen, it's not just to do with the speed and the hyper thing that you talk about, Alan, or even the immigration, but it's to do with more multilateral institutions, uh, the World Pro Intellectual Protection Organization, the fusion power efforts that are made, more foreign direct investment, more mergers and acquisitions, and an, uh, not very much reshoring of American foreign investment coming back to America, that's not really happening. But what is happening is that a growing proportion of R&D around the world is funded by foreign sources. So if you take British R&D, most of it, as elsewhere, is concentrated in manufacturing, 20% of that is foreign-financed R&D. So you've got, even in innovation, let us uh, leave aside labor power or uh, uh, trade, you've got a greater integration of the world economy coinciding with a new protectionist uh, wind. Now, trade agreements, I don't think, can get around that. And I'm in agreement with uh, Michael that if you're trying to beat protectionism, trade agreements are not necessary. And I'd ask Vicky very politely, if trade agreements raise productivity, as one would think in a Smithian sense, how is it that we've got no productivity growth in America and most conspicuously Britain after all this membership of the EU. 
Trade agreements themselves can be protectionist. That was the idea of uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, dreamt up as a means of excluding China, and also the idea of the TTIP, which, uh, just for those who are, think that globalization is only going one way, uh, the deli deliciously named uh, Jerky Katanen, who's, I think, uh, Nordic of some sort, Vice President of the European Commission, says TTIP, the trans... Uh, uh, let me get my hand around it. The trans... How do I say it? Thank you so much, yes. Just a bit nervous at the top here. Uh, he says it's in the freezer anyway, Rob. So, uh, you know, there are, there are problems there, and I don't think we can be uh, complacent about it. Now, the second thing to say is, I think Alan was nearer the mark here uh, than some people who talked about globalization, what is uh, uh, referred to as populism, and that is, um, what's the, why are if globalization is so great, why are so many people against it? And I think uh, we need to get the, uh, the causality right here. It's not that globalization turned everybody into Brexiteers and deplorables and Midwestern fatties, uh, uh, as uh, Hillary Clinton would have it. The medium skilled, as Vicky says, may be the most hit rather than the lowest skills. But I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen, it's the delegitimization and aloofness of elites that has made people make the, uh, the kind of political steps they've ma made. And then when they notice that a local company has out offshored all its jobs, then that will reinforce that political sentiment. But that is not something that is the prime mover in it. Uh, local industries can be devastated. David Orter has shown that very clearly in the United States. But to re have just an economic reading of what is called populism, I think, is a great mistake. How long have I got? One more minute. Well, the, we, we need to recognize that trade agreements and, and tariffs and the formal measures disguise a world where state expenditure, even in the US, accounts for nearly 40% of gross domestic product. The reputedly neoliberal US supports its industries and its companies every bit as much as China does with its subsidies and every bit as much as the EU freezes out African imports uh, and all of that. To believe that Africa and India will have a nice time with the perspiration that we heard about uh, earlier in the panel, that is not going to do globalization or anybody any favors. We've got to do better than that, and uh, the questions of youth in those continents will become much more salient in the global world to come. Uh, thank you to all our panel. Now, I'm going to give them a break. This is the battle of ideas, and you should... Uh, Engage in the battle yourselves. So, uh, have you got any questions or comments? This is, uh, by the way, as I keep saying in the Strand, um, it's, e it's economics, and a lot of people are going, you what? So, if you want to ask what a non-tariff barrier is, or what happened to or some trade agreement, anything you like, it doesn't matter. It's, it, that's absolutely fine. So, I'm going to start down here. Thank you. Hi. Um, yeah, I just wondered if uh, trade agreements stand for nothing, then how do you explain the fact that we do 30 billion of trade with Ireland for million people and 6 billion of trade with India, 1 billion people? Just wondered, Michael. Uh, hello, my name is Karen. I'd just like to ask a question on the EU and how much of a trade creating institution is the EU? 
and um, is, is really the EU only beneficial to Germany as that's the only country within the EU that has a trade surplus? And, uh, does it, and being reliant on the EU, doesn't that make us more vulnerable to 27 countries rather than the rest of the world? Um, yeah, thank you. So reliance on the EU, how much is it worth to us? Um, uh, so the, at the back, uh, there was a, I saw a hand. Yes, please. Um, um, my name is Nihal Adler. I'm actually from Berlin. We're here visiting. Um, my question is, I've heard you talk a lot about the economics of it. I've not heard a lot about the humans involved in this economics. I'd like to know um, about how, how, how will globalization um, try and solve the problem of um, cultures? How, how, how will the cultures be involved by all of this? Are we also thinking, and when you talk about uh, globalization, you talk about standards. What kind of standards? Um, are you, are, do you actually mean standards that will help uh, impoverished people, people, for example, in Bangladesh? Um, you help them, yes, but uh, you also, how, how are the, the economies that are making all of this money helping the impoverished? Okay, uh, so this uh, hand in the middle, so woman with spectacles. Oh no, there's a. Uh, so you were sitting in front of a woman with spectacles, but anyway, yes, go ahead, sir. <laughs> All I could see was the... Anyway. Don't worry, anyway. Um, yeah, I'd just like to uh, say about the uh, globalisation in a general sense, to me, is actually um, a side effect, and it's a side effect of technology. Um, and actually, the mobile phone in our hands are really the personification of that globalisation. Um, what the globalisation we seem to be talking about in this room is actually the scaling up of protectionism to a global level. Um, and actually, in, in that respect, uh, Trump is only really taking advantage of the fact that his country is actually at the forefront of globalization. It's got 350 million people, the largest uh, uh, economy in the world. And so he can take advantage of other countries and other groups of people that aren't as globalized as him. So actually, it sort of like makes sense in his, his term. And that's really all I'd like to say is that, you know, we're, we're the ones that actually are going against globalization in this country, not America. With every expansion of trade, you have an expansion of a political body to manage it. We've seen that at a national level and uh, so forth. And now we're at a global level. So the question is, uh, obviously, the structures we have at the moment are not sufficiently robust to manage trade. And so how do we make them more democratically accountable and responsible? That's a very interesting question. That's one on my mind as well. If we, we rejected the EU because it's not democratic, what happens with all these global trade bodies that are springing up? Um, uh, so uh, there seems to be an implicit assumption that we're going to see sustained levels of growth over the next few decades. And I guess my question is, um, g given this kind of fourth industrial revolution hasn't really seen the, le the, the levels of productivity um, that we've seen in previous economic revolutions, uh, why we assume that's the case. And even if it is, how do we square that with uh, climate change? Thank you. Um, so I'm from the Dominican Republic, so we've been brainwashed that neoliberalism and globalization is best for everyone and good for everyone. And I have a moral conflict because 
actually, I was number one fan of globalization since I love ordering stuff from Amazon, but then I wonder what happened to the local store next to my house, right? And I want, just wonder if this hyper-globalization that is always going to hurt some, uh, and some group of people that maybe the, the government doesn't have the social net to protect them, or as my country that have to take IMF loans and adapt and restruct oral economy towards adapting all free trade that maybe we're not ready to take on, maybe it would be better off with mo a modest globalization. What do you think if this hyper-globalization hyper is a one-size-fits-all or if developing countries should have just a different um, approach to it? If, it? if this protectionism is like the, the remedy for the adverse of globalization? I'll, I'll definitely come out again. I'm going to bring the panel in after this gentleman. Hi, my name is Harris, and after reading uh, parts of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations over the summer, I realized the value of globalization, specialization, and I definitely support it. Despite that, I also support Brexit. For I feel that an institution like the EU, it's a great example of globalization. It, I, I, like I said, I do encourage globalization. I do encourage agreements uh, between countries, uh, bilateral trade agreements, whatever they may be. However, I feel like the EU has too many countries involved in one agreement. And that's what is really bringing down the EU and that it's perhaps the main cause or maybe not the main cause, but contributes to all the, cause, all the main causes of the Brexit and why we voted for Brexit. So I would like uh, the panel's views on that. Would you say that there are too many countries in the EU or are we not trading with the right countries in the EU? Does the EU restrict our economic freedom as well? Thank you. Okay, right. so I'm going to bring the panel back in for about two minutes each or something. So, obviously, do not try to answer everything. I'm going to start with Vicky, but don't try and answer everything. Just pick up things that you uh, that interest you. But there seems to be some themes about, you know, uh, the, you know the effects of globalization. Is it as positive as some people have been saying? And you know, how do we get democratic control over over it? And some some various other points, but. Pick, pick up what you want, Vicky. Okay. Um, well, first of all, on the, uh, on the democratic institutions, which I thought was a very, very good question. Uh, of course, the problem is that those institutions are far too democratic. And I'm saying this, for example, the WTO, every, every member country uh, has a vote. The result is that we haven't been able to get far enough with multilateral agreements. And that's why we are in bilateral trade agreements, which are seriously suboptimal. Uh, and there are still lots of restrictions around. What is more, WTO has not been able to push through free movement of services, uh, which has been the main area which is subjected to, as James was saying, non-tariff barriers, which is a main blockage in terms of growth. And therefore, if you look at what countries are doing, and there's a very interesting question about um, uh, countries that, uh, that perhaps have, are suffering from hyper-globalization. In reality, the majority of the countries that have been mentioned, whether it's Bangladesh, whether it's India, uh, whether it's also China, have loads of restrictions in terms of, of how they open up their own countries. Loads of restrictions. The reason why there is no EU-Indian agreement is because mainly, you know, up to a point, the Indians did, wanted in exchange to have completely free movement of people, and we didn't give it to them. But they have, as the UK, in fact, stopped the EU agreement going forward. Uh, but they have lots of restrictions in their insurance sector, in other areas. They haven't actually been able to open up sufficiently to take advantage of globalization, which I think eventually would have helped their own people, believing that actually protecting it was, was, was a better idea. In terms of Europe, um, we sell 45% of our goods to Europe, uh, irrespective of the fact there are 27 or 28 of us there. There is no doubt 
I think from what you were reading, that having such a big uh, region with lots of different interests makes it more difficult to manage and, and, and run. Nevertheless, it is extraordinary how much unanimity there is in terms of all the trade ag agreements that are out there and also in terms of the standards. There are still differences in each country, of course, subsidies in one area or another and what have you, which is actually what this authority, the EU, is trying to sort out. It doesn't do it perfectly, but look at the UK. Do we run our government perfectly? I would say right now, no. Okay. Well, there were some excellent comments there. Um, just, just to pick up briefly on the Irish question, um, not least because um, I advise the Taoiseach and I'm Irish, um, it's actually got a lot to do with geographical proximity, frankly, uh, so it predates the EU anyway. Um, and it will probably follow after the EU, you know, just given the cost of transportation, Ireland will be exporting a huge amount of its agricultural produce to Britain in or outside of the EU. And in fact, the biggest uh, biggest economy that's been hurt in Ireland was hurt last year. Uh, when the Brexit vote came through, this is exactly the time that Irish producers uh, were negotiating to sell their crops. They just had, uh, this was June last year, they could just see where the crops were coming, and then whack, suddenly they had a 20% trade disadvantage. So um, Ireland's hurting here uh, quite seriously, um, but it will continue to trade. And many studies have shown, particularly um, due to transport costs and all that, fairly fairly bloody obviously, <laughs> that uh, you trade with your neighbors, uh, at least when it's a heavy, a heavy good. I think the second thing, uh, Lena, you raised, uh, I thought, a really good question about standards and cultures. It's very difficult as, you know, as economists, you, you have to abstract everything. You cannot deal with the individual. You know, I did say there were seven billion people on the planet, and by the time I got through being de de having dealt with each one of them for, for about three seconds each, um, not only would I have beaten Methuselah, uh, but I would also obviously be dead. So, um, you know, it's, it, you can't do it. You have to abstract. But I do think um, there's some interesting tensions here about culture, and I would point you to, and meine Frau ist auch Deutsch und meine Großmutti, that you can look at things like passing off as a very distinctive thing. So one of the great stories in life is the box boitel. The box boitel was a, a form, um, for those of you who are British, you'll call it Matthews Rosé. That's the Matthews Rosé bottle, but it's not. It was actually awarded by the Bishop of Würzburg to the producers in the region of Franken, <laughs> and this was a standard. You knew it was, a, it was from Franken because it was shaped like a box boitel. And when the Catholic Church ruled uh, Central Europe, it was able to enforce this. Uh, and then in the, I think it was in the late 30s, um, a chap in Portugal decided to copy this. And this was a long-running dispute between the producers in Portugal and the producers in, uh, in Franken, which uh, I hasten to add that they lost uh, in Franken. So they were unable to impose this. And I think this is important. When people talk about standards, there's standards to do with passing off, which was illegal. My trying to pretend that this is a German wine, which is clearly not what the Portuguese were trying to do, would be wrong. Uh, but then there's standards about quality, um, and so we get into this area of non-tariff trade barriers and the very good example of chlorinated chicken. Um, and so the question then becomes, is chlorinated chicken really an essential standard uh, breaker that we shouldn't be importing it, or is it, in fact, just a, a, a non-tariff trade barrier? And many of these things will not be amenable to any rational analysis. They're about the values that you hold and hold dear. And that's uh, kind of going back to the box boiler. That's what those poor German uh, wine growers were worried about, was people in Portugal pretending they were German wines, when it was pretty transparent that that wasn't the case at all. But I got news for you. I go back there frequently, and they still feel they were hard done by. Well, so many interesting points. L let me deal with the EU first. Um, 
partly because I want to plug my book, Clean Brexit, that's just come out a few weeks ago. But um, let's put it in perspective. The European Union is a declining share of the global economy. After we've left, the European Union will account for less than one-fifth of the global economy. On top of that, it's a declining share of our exports. In 2000, 61% of our exports went to the EU. It's now 44%. They go up and down maybe each year, but the trend is clearly down. And the ONS, Office for National Statistics, say the 44% overstates the true figure because of the so-called Rotterdam effect. There are always pros and cons in economics for and against things. We're in the single market. We accept the four freedoms. But the UK is a service sector economy. It's 80% of our economy. The one area the single market doesn't work properly in is services. Customs union. The EU is the most protectionist. The most protectionist. Let me say it again. The most protectionist group in the world. It's set up effectively. The tariff wall around it protects French farmers and German car makers. That's why the three items that are taxed the most, because a tariff is a tax, the three items that have the highest tariff coming into the UK from outside the EU are food, clothing and footwear. Happen to be three items that the poorer you are, you tend to spend a disproportionate amount of your income on. It's meat. Why is it that Argentinian meat is only sold in wealthy or uh, expensive restaurants in London? Um, even though Argentinian meat is really cheap, because meat has a 36% tariff on it. Um, so food prices are much higher than they would otherwise be. So the EU is a protectionist group. And I think the key challenge is how the EU changes and the UK change. Hopefully Brexit will be a win-win because it will finally force the EU to chase uh, um, dress reforms. But the gentleman, I think it was Karen's question. Yeah, um, the trouble about Germany and the EU is at its core is the euro. And the euro is just unstable. And when you have something at your core that's unstable, it means that if you try and do other good things, you still have an unstable core. That's what, and the euro effectively subsidizes German industry relative to the rest of the European Union. That's why when Eastern European countries come in, the first thing that normally goes is their agricultural sector undercut, then their industrial sector goes, that's undercut, then the skilled workers come to the UK, and the shame is that their skilled workers can't stay in their own country. Um, the challenge, of course, taking this one step further, was raised on the panel here about multinationals. The challenge with globalization is that the things that avoid tax are those things that are mobile. Multinational companies and skilled workers. Un things that don't move, therefore, become liable to tax. It's actually compounded further in the EU because of the single market's right of establishment, which is the free movement for companies that we never talked about. Didn't come up in four months of the campaign. Right of establishment allows a multinational company to base itself where the tax rate is lowest, usually Luxembourg, Netherlands, or Ireland. They then rebook their business into the UK. And most multinational companies don't pay much tax in the UK. That's why labor does need to be outside the single market to put its policies into effect. And they book their revenues in London that just cover their costs. And basically, their main source of where they pay the tax, which is next to nothing, is through Ireland. Basically, the tax shortfall from the single market's right of establishment is absolutely criminal in the UK uh, because of the single market. So the EU is not as protectionist, uh, sorry, as globalization friendly as you say. Maybe final question about productivity, because I think this is a key point. Um, high productive economies outstrip low productive economies. They achieve faster rates of growth, higher living standards. Therefore, if we have higher productivity, we can have higher wages or work less or maybe both. 
Western economies have low productivity. Um, Britain is poor, but other countries don't always measure it in the way we do. What's the answer? Um, the Center for Social Justice did a recent working paper on this, or a big report, which included lots of different people contributing to it. And it's really the four eyes. We need more innovation. Simple as that. Infrastructure. The UK government needs to decide to spend more money outside of London. We need to have more investment. UK companies have invested less than any of their major neighbours for the last 20 years, particularly in terms of investment in their people. And the final thing is inclusive productivity. We, are very, we have some high productive companies, but we don't diffuse those productivity gains across the country. We know what needs to be done. We just need to incentivise people to do it. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I want to talk about arbitrage. Arbitrage is the idea. Imagine you go and buy some apples and you know that you can sell them all over there. So you buy them from a shop and you go and sell them to another shop and you make some money because they're more expensive there than where you bought them. That's arbitrage, right? In a sense, that's what globalization is. Well, certainly globalized supply chains are arbitrage. They're the idea you can buy an asset or manufacture an asset more cheaply in one country, ship it to another country and sell it for more. And arbitrage is a self-limiting process because as you do it, the price in the place you buy it goes up, the price in the place you sell it goes down, and that's what happens. Right? Happens in all sorts of assets, particularly in finance, but it's just a sort of truth of economics. That's what's happening to wages in the developing world and the new economies. And the, the lady from uh, the Dominican Republic, this is really an answer to your question. The core wage impact, labour price impact of globalisation has been to raise wages in countries who are plugged into the globalisation process of supplies. And on the other side of the arbitrage equation, to lower them in countries which used to manufacture those same things and now don't. The people who uh, are not plugged into the globalisation process have not seen their wages go up. Um, that's sort of what's happened. So I that's a sort of point on that. The human side of globalisation in de developing economies is quite strong, so long as they're plugged into the globalisation process. It is much worse, as has been said consistently today, if you happen to have been the manufacturer in the old economy, uh, the sinking economies, uh, when you're with the impact has been much, much worse, and we should be very, very clear about the human impact there. But it brings me on to the kind of the concept of neoliberalism, and we... We've started to use neoliberalism when we actually we mean social democracy. You know, neoliberalism isn't sort of vaguely left-wing internationalism. Neoliberalism is something very, very different, and we shouldn't use it as a, as, as a silencing word. The impact of globalisation is to arbitrage out the, uh, the parts of the world where previously uh, income was very, very poor, and sadly to arbitrage down the, uh, the wages in places where it's very expensive to live. If we want to address those things, one of the things we need to do is, as naturally those two wage situations equalise to the point where they're not competitive advantages or disadvantages anymore, and we're moving in that direction slowly, we need to use domestic policy to address that. Things like a minimum wage can do that, but it certainly isn't the case that globalisation is naturally negative in a human sense, uh, unless you happen to be caught on the wrong side of it, and they aren't the people who you necessarily think are. Okay, thank you, James. Well, I, I can't agree. I think the lady who said at the back, what about the impoverished, 
uh, and the lady from the Dominican Republic. Um, you know, we can, we've got it so bad in Europe, you know, Brexit or Remain, so terrible. But if you're one of the 200 million Africans who don't have uh, any kind of energy or the 800 million who don't have any kind of sanitation, if you're trying to create the 1 million jobs a month that the Narendra Modi government has to create in India, then globalization is actually most of the time all bad news down there for them. It's not uh, something that to write home about. Um, they are, without casting them as victims, they show very clearly that we can talk about China's inspiration to us all in the fourth industrial re revolution, but in large swathes of the developing world, nothing like that is happening. And I make the point, before we get starry-eyed about mobile phones uh, as being a, you know, the driving globalization, we haven't got the fourth industrial revolution in Britain, Europe, and America for the next 30 or 40 years. So it's not going to help even us for a long time, let alone uh, the, the, the billions in uh, southern Asia and in, uh, and in Africa. And I think this points up a very Im important thing, which is that globalization is something to do with the social relations that are bound up in the idea of capital. And capital today differs from Marx's capital, because if you read Marx's manifesto, the Communist Manifesto, he says it out and out revolutionizes the system of production. That's not true today. I noticed, the, Gerard, that you rode back on your earlier sets, uh, remarks that technical change is continuous. It ain't anymore. Old Carl must be turning in his grave. Right? It's not happening. And for proof of that, you know, look at the mobile phone. It's not going anywhere fast. So if that's driving globalization, we can expect to see a lot less of it. Globalization will, in fact, continue because of fundamental stagnation in the West and the quest among Eastern countries and principally China for new sources of ideas, for brands, for patents, for skills and for knowledge. In the West we're going abroad with foreign direct investment because there's no business worth playing for in Japan and America. In China they're going abroad and they are inspirational uh, because they're in search of, uh, of new technologies and things like that. In the developing world the picture from globalization is very different, much worse than it is in Ohio or the north of, uh, north of England. And that's why we need ourselves to take control over the process of globalization. Africans in particular, if I may just conclude, on the themes of this uh, strand, they need electronic textiles, a new industry. They need agricultural technology with biotech, a new industry. In the Dominican Republic, they need to develop subsea resources, including, dare I say it, oil and gas offshore. We need automated mining so that there's fewer casualties in mining in Africa. Those new industries that we've talked about in the West are desperately required in the, in the South, and all the trade agreements won't deliver them, only the people behind real technological investment, not the fake stuff, can guarantee their future, not globalization. Okay, right. So, I've got about 15 minutes before I bring the panel back to give, you, give us their concluding thoughts. So, I'll let them take a breather. And we'll start with this lady at the front. Yes. Hi, uh, Leslie. Um, I wonder whether technological change in the end is itself going to damage globalization. Recently, I talked to somebody who runs 
a 3D printing company for metal objects. And he was talking about how you can now transfer this technology effectively anywhere in the world. Does this mean that eventually that our manufacturing is going to be entirely local? That in, in some ways, globalization might be trounced by technology itself? Okay, yeah, here's the front. Phil, sometimes when we're, oops, sorry. Sometimes when we're discussing these, you know, very important issues, we are trade and protectionism and so on. I sometimes wish, sometimes perhaps we stopped, could stop using the word globalization because in itself, it, I think, it often more mystifies things than it does actually clarify what is going on. I mean, Alan raised a very important point, saying, "What is new about globalization?" And I think posing that. To me, there's really two different globalization narratives or discussion. There's a globalization discussion which is about economic relations on an international scale, whether it's trade or whether it's capital flows or people flows or, 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 or uh, uh, investment going on and so on. But it seems to me beside that, there's another um, uh, uh, discussion or there's another use of globalization, which is this catch-all term which we throw everything into. I mean, even in this discussion, People have equated globalization with trade, certainly, with protectionism, which is like the opposite, with trade agreements, uh, with technology, some people are saying it is. It's just this sort of term which is just thrown around. Everything's lumped into it, but it doesn't really explain the first half of globalization, which are what are those economic relations, what are happening, what's driving those things, which I think if we look at those, we find that, in fact, it's much more what's going on within different nation states, which is what is manifest on a global economy. I mean, to give an example, uh, Gerard made the, uh, uh, a very important um, illustration uh, of one of the trends which really uh, kicked off this whole discussion is, is globalization in reverse, which was the decline in world trade in the early part of this decade. And that sort of threw everybody, you know, because for 20 years, trade had been growing faster than growth, and all of a sudden, it seemed to stop and slow down. And this led to all this panic, oh, we're going into protectionism, we're, you know, the world's falling apart, and so on. Whereas, actually, if you break it down, you can see there's a very obvious reason, which was not to do with globalization, not this force which is imposing itself on us, but was what was happening in China. Because what was happening in China, in a nation state, was that it was expanding massively in trade in the, in the 90s and 2000s, and that was what was pushing up trade. And then, lo and behold, China makes a decision to change its economic model and stops exporting so much to the West, but instead developing its own economy internally and also exporting capital, the, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, whereby instead of relying on trade, China is, is exporting its capital and doing other things. So, in fact, this whole discussion about globalization being in reverse has quite rational uh, roots to it, which we can discuss, and there's other factors which I haven't got time to go into. But national changes manifest themselves, and that's obviously the best way of looking at it. But I think, I think, uh, I think the problem with our discussion, not just here, but generally, is that we tend, I say, to, to get into this globalization discussion, which confuses things and, and gives us this idea that this, there's these inexorable forces there which are dominating us, as opposed to breaking it down into its different components. Um, I'm Derek. Um Taking up um, a point that Gerard raised, um, globalization really hasn't gone far enough. Um, what we're talking about is movement of jobs and, and produ production. Um, and really, we should be talking about uh, international agreements, meaningful international agreements. A real terror at the moment is the growth of large businesses 
and I'd raise um, Amazon as one of them. Anybody who's selling is threatened by, by, by Amazon, and um, we, we therefore need an agreement which prevents Amazon and, and the likes having a, a major advantage over uh, brick-based businesses. Okay, hi, uh, my name's Alistair. It's a question primarily for the pro-EU members of the panel, but it could be for anyone, really. I just wanted to know what you made of the a refrain you heard in the campaign and since that um, people who were in favour of Brexit were not always doing it because they were against globalisation, but that they wanted more of it, and that things like the common external tariff you know, inhibit trade with you know, the developing world, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, and thereby inhibit development in those countries, which holds back not only the quality of life of those people, but also the level of development that would make competition with Europe stronger and therefore the economies within Europe stronger and also make those places better, um, more suitable for development and investment themselves. And therefore the, the EU is a kind of inhibitor to globalisation rather than a bastion of it. Um, I'm just wondering if the real problem is actually that the economy has accelerated faster than politics. So we're trying to frame uh, a whole new global economy in 19th century political debate. Uh, and it may be that we just can't do that anymore. We need to find a new framework uh, in which to uh, capture uh, the true economy of the world. This is one of those dumb questions. <laughs> um, I've just spent a bit of time in China, and um, one of the things that's um, very impressive is the way in which people make payments. <clears throat> so most young people make payment through WeChat, which is a social media app. Um, and um, an economy that previously was understood as a cash economy has almost overnight become a digital financial economy. It's a really interesting thing, and I was trying to understand how that was possible and whether it was possible for that sort of elimination of the bank in the process uh, to be transferred into the West. And the conclusion that I drew was that um, China's isolation financially from the rest of the world economy was what allowed this to take place without it being risky, but I'm not sure about that, and I'm not sure ha for how long China can sustain a position of financial isolation from the rest of the world economy. Is it as cool as paying with your phone, which I still get a childish delight from? All oh, right, okay, thank you. More hands, more hands. We've got about five minutes left, just beside you. Right. Sorry, I wanted to make a point that um, Alan, well, follow on from a point that Alan made about arbitrage effectively leading to the levelling out prices dropping in one place, rising in another place, until it becomes equal. Because um, I think w this doesn't seem to affect um, company profits. Because you look around and you see like potholes in the road, the council haven't got money to fix. But all the big global companies, their profits just seem to be on a continuous upward curve. So this arbitrage effect doesn't seem to affect their profits. <laughs> Is there a case that globalisation has generated new monopolies which are difficult to break? Yeah. Good question. Uh, yes. If you could stand up, it would make life easier. Thank Hi, you. Uh, I'm Teresa. Uh, so my question is really around what is the future of globalisation? And some people have touched on uh, similar questions, really, which is, you know, does the decline of the nation-state mean that you know we have to think about globalization in a different way does the rise of digital currencies open banking regulations all of these things how are they going to start impacting on 
global arrangements, globalization. So, you know, I, I'm interested to hear less about trade agreements and what they might be and what the panel think the future of global trade and globalization might be, not just in the next sort of couple of years, but looking further ahead than that. Hi, I'm Patrick. Um, it was to the point about um, uh, wage arbitrage. I think there's a lot of other arbitrage that takes place um, when countries trade with each other, um, which makes this com uh, conversation very tricky. Um, we can talk about uh, health and safety at work, we can talk about workers' rights, uh, we can talk about environmental regulation, etc. And it is perhaps worth considering whether, as much as trade barriers are negative for the wealth generation of nations, we should perhaps also consider what we've achieved here in the West through many, many decades of fighting uh, to get certain rules to certain levels. Hi, my name's Dan. Um, I just had a quick question. Why does globalization have such a bad PR problem? I mean, you guys have explained many benefits that it brings, but how do you sell it to the inevitable losers from globalization? My name is Emily. I was wondering if it's possible or if the panel thinks that it's possible for us all to win. Is, is global trade a zero-sum game uh, when we encourage the Global South via the World Bank and other organizations to both liberalize and undergo a sectoral shift and to focus more on manufacturing? What impact would that have on us here in the West? And is it really feasible and possible for us to conceive of us all winning um, through globalization? Okay, so I'm going to bring the panel back. Gerard has been itching to get, itching to get in. So, I'll t so what I'll do is I'll take him first and then take... A the speakers in the order that they originally spoke. And I'd be very interested to hear, because I think it was generally overall, people thought trade was a good thing. So if you want to give us 30 seconds on why trade is a good thing and why it's not just a zero-sum game and it's all positive and whatever, that would be quite a good way to finish the discussion. But any other points you want to make as well? So, Gerard. Uh, well, thank you, Chairman. Chairman, I was itching to get back into James's point earlier, but we've moved on. Maybe if I could incorporate that in my response. Actually, number, I've written down three big areas. First is Elliot's point over there about the pace of change. I think that is key, and in some respects, it incorporates a number of the other questions. Um, the fourth Industrial Revolution, contrary to James, I think is already happening. The previous session I think Elliot was on was about biotech. You're seeing technical change. You're seeing innovation all over the place. How we measure the world economy, we need to keep up with. Basically, the measurement we have is based on 1930s, 1940s. Productivity is often seen as not being a good guide to what's happening in the service sector. The whole thing about institutions needing to change, it's something Derek touched on. And also, you mentioned, quoted Jefferson. I'm, I was in the Jefferson Memorial a couple of weeks ago, and there's a whole a panel about the need for institutions to change with the times. And I think that's a big issue in making institutions accountable, aware of the challenges at the local level. In terms of China, this also comes in. Like When it came in in China, um, three million people signed up the very first day. And it's not so much China's... Um, isolation from the, I'm on the board of Bank of China here in the UK, the financial sector is developing very fast. What it is, I would argue, is that in some countries you're able to leapfrog. You don't have, um, you don't have 
the first generation, the second generation. Kenya's another example. Uh, 10 years ago, almost, like Kenya is having trouble having elections, but goodness, eight, 10 years ago, they were one of the first in Africa to actually have uh, people using mobile phones to pay checks. And you go to Kenya, everyone does that. So it's about that. Um, let me quote some figures. Look, when the world economy grows below 3%, it's seen as a recession very weak. When it grows above 4%, as it did before the global financial crisis driven by debt, it's seen as really good. The last couple of years, the world economy has barely grown above 3%, 3.2, 3.3. This year, it's growing 3.6%. Next year, 37 If the world economy grows at 3.5%, which most economists would say is not particularly strong, China will slow down, India, other countries will pick up. The world economy doubles in size in 20 years. Average incomes will go up by two-thirds in 20 years. People are sharing in this success. More people, as Vicky touched on at the beginning, have come out of poverty. You're seeing Africa has big challenges. You're seeing challenges in India, etc. But the Indian macroeconomy in the last three years has done really well. The challenge for us in the West is to make sure we adapt with this change. We need to make sure we have minimum income standards to safeguard people who have unskilled. We need to train people. And above all, here in Britain, we need to actually tax multinationals properly, and we need to actually invest not only in companies, in the infrastructure, but actually in people. One of the things we have not done for the last 20 years. We need to equip ourselves with the skills to face up to globalization. Okay, sorry to cut you short. Um, Vicky. Yes, well, I, I started by saying how important uh, trade, trade was and globalization was actually for, for the economy. So I think it can be a win-win without, without any doubt if it's done properly. But of course, individual national governments or even nation states, after all, you know, we have, we've got loads of small countries that have emerged, uh, particularly post-Soviet Union collapse. Uh, and they can all uh, work in a way to redistribute whatever, whatever incomes are, are created by this new technology and growth. Uh, but of course, uh, within some constraints, because a number of firms are multinational, as I said before, we absolutely need to have common standards and also common uh, ways in which we tax uh, multinationals. And I think the point about um, uh, companies having uh, perhaps you know, abusing their, their monopoly powers like Amazon and others uh, is something that, interestingly enough, as a pro, uh, perhaps I'm the only pro-EU person on this panel, I was seriously pro-EU, um, it is really the, the uh, European Commission which has been the, the, the most uh, effective uh, uh, in, in, uh, um, controller, if you like, of, of the types of, of taxes that, and, and also uh, behaviours that they uh, expect multinational companies, particularly US ones that operate in Europe, to, to abide by. So that's, that's actually good news. And I think we're moving in that way and there is much more international agreement across. On globalization itself, I think definition is really important. I mean, after all, when we talk about globalization, we don't just mean trade, we actually mean the transfer of people, money, and knowledge. So they're not uh, against each other, but they're actually the same thing. And when you talk about national uh, developments actually mattering, that's an incredibly good example of why we have, of, of the extent of globalization that exists. In other words, that a national change, which affects internal spending, which of course is then reflected into exports and imports and so on, can have such a crucial impact on the rest of the world. This, is, this interconnectivity that I mentioned from before, which is, which is absolutely what is at the heart of what's going on right now. And I think that's where... That, that's, that's how we should, we should think about it and define it. And this is why we need to have common international rules in a number of areas to ensure 
that, that it's, it actually spreads across in, in, a, in, in a more equal and efficient way. And if you do this in that, in that, in that manner, then the Africans, everyone else, uh, will benefit over a period of time. But very, very quickly on arbitrage, if I may, because I didn't mention it myself first, but I did talk about the loss of, 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 uh, wage, of uh, jobs in a particular area. This arbitraging that happens, of course, it, happens, uh, it has happened through time. After all, look at colonial Britain. Uh, so it's nothing particularly new. Uh, and, and so what, what actually uh, is, is happening, of course, is over a period of time, wages start going up in those other places. It takes time. But this is why China has brought so many people out of poverty. If you look at a number of areas in China, they're more expensive in terms of the wages that, that are being paid for these people. That is the case in the Western world. So one of the reasons for re-onshoring is because wages in other places are going up. It's actually good news because it means that they can buy loads more from this domestic economy themselves and bring more people out of poverty as well. Okay. Thank you very much, Michael. Well, it's been a refreshing discussion in a number of ways. I mean, about the only term that was bandied about was neoliberalism. Um, and actually, I think we stuck to, stuck to the subject quite well. Um, I accept that globalization is a bit vague, but um, we were much more on what's free trade. Um, I'm not a capitalist. I'm a free markets person. You know, capitalism was invented by Marx as a term, and that's the enemy, one might argue. Um, no, quite seriously, I, I believe in free markets because they're competition. I get out of bed in the morning because I'm competing with other businesses. Otherwise, I'd sit in there and, and slave away, kind of uh, turning over under the duvet. And I, and I want to point that out to you because we had a question back there about mobile phones, and it got uh, sort of pissed on up here. Um, I remember in 1984 as a student, this is pre the BT privatization, having to put up 600 pounds as a deposit for a telephone that might or might not be delivered anything from six to 18 months later. So competition works, you know, that's what, that's what we're talking about here. Uh, and if competition on mobile phones has slowed down, it's only slowed down. I might remind you that in the 1980s when I was working in the defense industry, we had a program called Bowman to deliver mobile telephony, right? It was very clear that Garcia, Mal uh, what was it? Uh, uh, Garcia Mal Allied uh, chips, were, uh, you know, these, <laughs> these chips were absolutely crucial and they had to be military chips. And by the early 90s, the Pentagon was begging Motorola for commercial off-the-shelf phones. Okay, so competition works. However, competition is the problem. It's got to be appropriate. There's a litany amongst economists, lack of competition, externalities, uh, agency problems, information asymmetries. But the first of those is competition. And I do think, if you want to look at WeChat, it's the ferocious competition in China for payments. In the United Kingdom, 85% of personal current accounts are handled by four banks. You work it out yourself. Uh, and that cartel tells you that anti-money laundering requires you to print out a PDF of a phone bill you haven't seen in six years, take it down to some bozo who wouldn't know a faked PDF, I wouldn't either, uh, and then have them stamp it. And this is modern. Okay, so, you know. Um, I think the second thing, though, is that that competition can get out of control. And so one of the big challenges in, in, the, in the way ahead is really how do we enforce multinational antitrust laws as these firms do get bigger and achieve economies of scale? A second point I'd just like to raise, and then I'll close, is about monetization. Uh, we haven't had time to talk about Veblen or positional goods. I'm actually quite scared about the, mon the corrosive monetization of, of people needing to compare themselves globally. Uh, and we could talk about that some other time, perhaps. But what we haven't focused on as well, and numbers have been bandied about, is GDP versus quality of life. I don't know about you. My quality of life is better than it was in 1984. I wouldn't remind you of all these examples. And it's not because I'm older or wealthier. You know, I do fear for my pension. I've got a lot of concerns out there. I wonder about my daughter's and my son's life. But nevertheless, it's a better world, by and large, in a more crowded planet. 
So what would I end on? Well, humility in the face of our ignorance. Um, all of these numbers that are thrown around with such precision, I would uh, urge you to take with an enormous grain of salt. Uh, the best estimate is that 25% to 40%, I'll repeat that because it's not a mistake, 25% to 40% of global trade is non-monetary. We haven't even spoken about that today. Um, so as we're going to live together on a shrinking planet, uh, you know, the other alternative I don't want to contemplate. Um, so we're going to have to make room for another 3 billion people over the next uh, 30 years. Let's do it. Let's focus on our quality of life, and trade and competition will help us achieve it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Alan. Thank you. I should start on the bank payments thing as the, the room's banker. As, as somebody who has been the bozo looking for the, uh, the PDF, um, and I didn't know whether they were real or not either, there, there is an interesting point, which is technical but interesting, which is that the success of the European economies after, say, 1550 onwards was partly powered by the rise of the bank and using, you give me a deposit, I lend that deposit to somebody else. That's one of, one of the reasons we've done very well. China luckily has enough surplus that can invest without needing to create money in that way. If we stopped, frankly, if you stopped giving me your money and I do the payments and deposits for you, we would lose one of the ways we power ourselves and that's not to be sniffed at. But that's a small point, but something which certainly is paying my mortgage, so I feel like I should defend it. Um, but back on track, uh, I'd end where I started, really, which is to say that globalisation is a at the global level, profoundly redistributive act. It closes inequalities between um, the north west of the world and the southeast of the world. It doesn't do it perfectly, but the bits of the world which have found themselves um, unimpacted by globalization are the ones who haven't been part of the globalization story, and clearly there are bits of the world who have not found themselves connected to global value chains. The bits of the world which have been negatively impacted by globalization are precisely those bits of the world in the developed economies who have been on the other side of the arbitrage, and that we need to deal with. But we deal with it, sir, your, your point about the rise in, in profits. There's an, I, do, I have a graph in front of me which I'd love to show anybody who wants to come and see it. But there is a, an incredibly strong correlation over the last two or three generations between the loss of unionization in the Western economies and the decline of wages as a percentage of GDP. Because yes, of course, wages tend to go up. Of course they do. But as a percentage of GDP, the amount of money that goes to labor rather than capital has been in fundamental decline. But it's been in decline possibly correlated with globalization, but certainly underpinned by a decline in um, domestic standards to protect the people who suffer as a result. Okay, thank you. Finally, James. The lady there who asked about uh, really reshoring with 3D printing, it's not happening. It's not going to happen, even in the long term. The reshoring jobs that have been created in the States the last few years, 50,000 a year max, including the, uh, those of foreign investors in the States, so it's not really happening. I think uh, just to turn to the question of China mobile payments and to reinforce what Phil said at the front, you know, there, there is a decline in the exports of goods and services as a percentage of Chinese GDP from 27 in 2006 to less than 20 last year. 
So China, in the long term, is becoming, on the medium term, is becoming a more insulated, more autarkic economy, even if it's reaching out to the, its environs in greater China and in Asia. The long-term future, as far as we can see from China, is more blocking three blocks in the uh, world economy, the Chinese block, broadly, the EU one, or uh, some version of it in the next few years, and the North American one, presuming NAFTA stays on the road. So that's the long-term future. If you want to find out um, whether it can always be win-win, I suggest you have a look at the German Foreign Ministry's Marshall Plan for Africa. It's not as generous as the original Marshall Plan, I can tell you that. So, you know, the questions of Africa's population and of India's are not going to... Uh, go away. And one of the things that becomes clear in that German plan is the point that was made at the back on, you know, doesn't globalization favor large monopolies? It does because those large monopolies enjoy the backing of the state. Amazon does a storm of business with the Department of Defense. All the German companies hoping to clean up in Africa with globalization are backed by the foreign ministry and all of that. So state versus state block versus block, the globalization will continue, but the tensions are going to increase, which is why internationalism and new industries for Africa and India must be the watchword for the next 20 years. Okay, can we thank our panel?